Diane, it's 7.04 p.m. Welcome to the sixth episode of Twin Peaks Peaks. Uh, We're covering episode five, a.k.a. Cooper's Dreams. I'm Matt. I'm Ashley. (laughs) This episode is chock-a-block full of events. And in light of last week's super long episode, (laughs) expect less, um, let's say, gushing from me over certain moments. Even though there are a lot of moments this episode, I would love to just spotlight and geek out about. This is an important episode. Yeah, very much so. Um, Before we get to that, should we talk about revival news? Yeah, so there's only one bit of news from this week, and it comes from IndieWire's blog, in which uh, they did an interview with uh, David Nevins from Showtime. He's one of the executives at Showtime. Um, And he... It's actually an interview with CNN that they're recapping. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) So, all right. Um, So, basically, uh, David Nevins is saying that they're giving David Lynch quite a bit of creative control, sort of an unprecedented amount of creative control. Um, And IndieWire also makes reference to comments apparently made by David Lynch. They do not cite the source of these comments that say that um, this upcoming season will be shot on celluloid. And we had talked about how David had said that it would be on digital format instead. What's right? What's wrong? We don't know. Guess we'll wait have to wait until 2017 to find out. Oh, I hope not. I hope we don't have to like start up this podcast again like eight months after it finishes or whatever it would be. Oh god, you're right. Yeah, that'd be kind of awkward. That would be really interesting because then we could go back and like be like, oh, we were so young then. <laughs> Listen to Matt. All he does in the first like eight episodes of the show is complain about his life. <laughs> But now things are great. Yeah, I'll have a cat. My herb garden will be up and running. We'll be adults. No, let's be real. By 2017, I'll be lucky if I've actually like gotten a driver's license and <laughs> maybe started to learn how to swim, like addressing very basic life needs. I'll be happy if I've reached that point by 2017. My herb garden will be on point, though. So. Okay, well, I mean, let's see. We'll see. I feel it's like it's already maybe... flourishing, so... Yeah, but, I mean, drought is a common problem now. It's in my apartment. (laughs) Apartment drought? Ever heard of it? I haven't. Therefore, I don't know if it exists or not. I'm just saying, let's not, like last week, I was saying, to a degree, I was saying, let's not get too optimistic about the revival. Let's also not get too optimistic about our herb gardens or other markers of life happiness in 2017, okay? Things could be bad. I feel like it's... The big one. (laughs) Yeah. Might hit between now and the Twin Peaks revival. You're more worried about that than I am. But yes, it could be that your herb garden is actually the only thing ruined in your apartment by the earthquake. (laughs) In which case, I think you should feel very lucky. (laughs) Anyway. Do you think the revival is going to be affected by the big one? (laughs) I mean, yeah, if it happens while they're filming. (laughs) along the fault line like yeah (laughs) things might get affected maybe this is a are you saying do you think the in the 18 episodes like there's going to be this b plot of like but what about the earthquake though (laughs) these old buildings in twin peaks are not earthquake ready i hope they don't spend much time on that 
C plot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Uh, moving on. This episode starts in what I feel like is a. It's like how a person might start a Twin Peaks fanfic. Like, <laughs> open Cooper's room at the Great Northern, talking to Diane about something. Only this case, the something is actually like the first time we've seen him lose his cool, yeah. like ever in the show. And it's just these shitty shitty party hard Icelandic people keeping him up at night. Um, I love it. Um, one interesting quote uh, from that scene is when he says to Diane, once a traveler leaves his home, he loses almost 100% of his control over his environment. How does this relate to The Shining? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> Did I just get you totally off yeah. guard with that one? I was expecting Shining no. connections throughout the episode now. <laughs> also, every scene is going to come with my Nadine and Ed analysis, regardless of whether or not it's their <laughs> plot line at all. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of The Shining, because Jack in The Shining takes control of his environment. Yeah. Whereas Cooper is not in control. Cooper the is... the parallels I was drawing were not with Cooper and Jack Nicholson. So. It's true. It's true. It's, we're ta- we're, we'll wait for the Ben Horn scenes. Then. Okay. Um... I have to say, this is, it's so, it, it, it's, it's a great, like, kind of just opener for the episode, because suddenly, even though it's this just it, almost inconsequential, like, yes, such and such ghost would blot, that means that they have another potential group of investors to woo, mm-hmm. so it's, they're still moving forward on, oh, they're moving really, moving the plot a lot forward on burning the mill, yeah. and Ben, oh, and yeah. Catherine, and oh, Josie, yeah. this episode, but to just start the episode with, like, Cooper's now like a leaf in the wind. Like, he's just, like, inconvenienced. He's lost his cool he's for the first time. Inconvenienced, yeah. Um, and then we get uh, the kind of what we should now be accustomed to, which is breakfast at the Great Northern. <laughs> like, in a certain way, Twin Peaks, like, wants to, because it's taking us day by day, which I don't know how a common of a thing that was in sort of prime time serial tv at that point yeah it definitely seems like one of those elements that people would put a pin on and say oh this is them kind of doing a soap opera type thing and incorporating that structure into it because a soap opera would air every day right that's i'm not an idiot right that's how soap (laughs) operas work that is how that works yeah good (laughs) so i don't see you know a soap opera is not going to cover a week of time in one episode ideally um but, yeah, it goes through the list. It was just like, we got to make sure we see these people eat breakfast, sometimes two breakfasts. Uh, we're probably going to check in with somebody at lunchtime, probably in the diner, uh, and so on. You, you know, we were thinking about how much the show revolves around food, mm-hmm. but that's just a almost like a necessary artifact of we're going to follow this many plot lines throughout, you know, basically a day at a time. Yeah, but you don't see that in other TV series. Yeah, you wonder... There are tons of TV series where you're like, when do people eat? Has anyone gone grocery shopping recently? Answer is probably no. I mean, if you were to open, like, Mulder's fridge, it's probably... Okay, that's not a good example. I'm sure Dana has stuff in her fridge. <laughs> Mulder, by, bir- by virtue of being Mulder, doesn't have stuff in his fridge. He actually He's just has porno tapes in, in his 30s. fridge. He, he gets takeout... And he takes his porn out of his fridge. Yeah, okay. Where it's overflowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, oh my gosh, the flirting at the top of this episode, though. Yeah. This episode, as that... is, is, is though it wasn't already enough, this episode turns Audrey and Cooper up to 11. With just, not like another TV show would do with like long, lengthy scenes, but just like, boop, boop. And then the very yeah. ending of the episode, boop, is like, okay, well, this has gotten way more serious yeah, than just like... establishing that Audrey is 18, so we don't have to feel weird about it. <laughs> so, so we don't have to feel as weird about it. We don't have to feel legally weird about it. Yeah. As though the law is ever <laughs> a good indicator. I want to bring up Courtney Stodden, but that itself wasn't good because she wasn't 18. No, she was yeah. like 16 and she had her parents written. Per, her, her mom was like there. Yeah, which somehow makes permission. it like it's supposed to make it okay, but it definitely doesn't. No, it's not okay at Just all. Just like, what do we know maybe in the meta sense outside of what the show tells us what cooper's age is no we know that he's been the fbi for a while yeah and i'm not considering it as a career path but i have to assume that if you say you want to go to the fbi academy right out of college right. it'll take you a while and right. he's been on a number of cases right but kyle mclaughlin is ageless my question is put yourself well I mean, and I don't, I don't want to get too judgy here. Personal preference for dating partners is what it is. It's a complicated issue. But put yourself in the shoes of an 18-year-old with Tinder. Are you going to in increase that search range up to 30 and then okay. say looking for FBI agent? Okay. As an 18-year-old, yes. <laughs> as, as a 22-year-old, does my Tinder age range include 18-year-olds? No. Okay, so you're saying the other way around. Well, like if you're, you're you're 30, you're not looking for. You shouldn't be if you're <laughs> not a predatory person. <laughs> well, because like when you're 18, it's like, oh, I feel so mature. I'm an adult now. I'm like, doing what's my the own difference thing. between me and a 30 year old? Exactly. You know, age is nothing but a number. And he says I'm really mature for my age. I'm looking at 21 year olds in my life now, being like, God, you're so young. And I turned 23 in September because my sense of time is just totally messed up now. That's why I have a podcast with you where we talk about a show that was on TV before we were born. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will never shake this vestigial part of me that was developed as a child that wants to pretend like I'm older than I am. Yeah, yeah that's real. It's weird. But if you, if you think about it, so the common rule about uh, dating in ages is half your age plus seven. Mm -hmm. We're both 22. So for us, that rule gives us 18 as a hard limit. Yeah. I'm not into that. No. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know if I could... I don't know if I could date someone, like, younger than 21, or even date someone 21. Anyway, Sorry. this isn't about our <laughs> personal dating preferences, unless, hey, you're out there listening and you're thinking one of these two. Swipe right. Swipe right. Swipe right. <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast. That's swiping right on a podcast, right? Um, I'll tell you what I am into, though. Hapa! <laughs> Hepa, no, I'm actually into Jerry because we get more Jerry this episode, and I love Jerry. Um, talking about Odin at the start, and um, probably, I don't know. It seems like when we talk about the looks of Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. so far we're batting like evenly in terms of bringing it up. Mm -hmm. um, but in the types of 
outfits we would focus on. I think it's different because I want to talk about Jerry's shirt and those weird buttons. Did you notice that? <laughs> no. See, I know. No. <laughs> I knew. If I was like, oh, I mean, Audrey was looking kind of like, you know, not uncharacteristic, but more plain with her like gray sweater at the top of the episode, which you may have like, yeah, and the kind plaid of skirt, on. and her hair looked great. And yeah. there's another top Audrey. I want later to in this talk episode. about Jerry's shirt, though. <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> Can you provide me a picture? Because I don't remember. Um, I'm not that well, serious. I could provide you a picture, but it wouldn't work well in the podcast medium. So, for those listening at home, if you want to bring up your Netflix tab or what have you, and go to the top of the episode when Jerry walks in, he's got this shirt on that has different coordinations of buttons down the center uh-huh. so some of like there's a lot of two button combos but some of them will be placed at a diagonal with a thread oh. between them and then like okay. in a horizontal line and a vertical line and so forth and it's so weird but i don't it's know definitely like a purposeful thing not a like he failed to sew his button on oh no it's it's a fashionable shirt that i don't think i feel like is I'm it? not 100% out of touch with, like, men's fashion. Uh-huh. But if that was a thing then, like, a legitimate thing then, and not a character, like, wardrobe choice where someone was like, what's the most gaudy, expensive men's shirt we can find to put Jerry in? Because that makes sense. Right. If that was a more common fashion thing then, it's absolutely not now. Because it seems so unfunctional. Like, half those gotta be fake buttons. Because yeah, otherwise, it's gotta be hell to put that shirt on. Of course. But then again, Jerry would go that far for his look. I, have I a think feeling. the real question is, is that shirt Icelandic? Ooh. Is that Is he is he trying to Ooh, gosh, th- we need to put more research into this. I should have I should have <laughs> been Googling Icelandic menswear before this episode Why to try you? and figure this stuff out. Well You know? You didn't even notice the shirt. I was gonna. That's why it's your responsibility. You did not appreciate Jerry's look. <laughs> um, also, he busted an entire leg of lamb out of nowhere. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> I did not suggest that for our food segment because of obvious reasons. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I bet you. I, did you pick up on it though? As you were watching the episode, trying to yep, pull I out was food like, things, and you're like, "Well, out of the question. That can't work." Yeah, you could eat that. <laughs> I would not participate. It's a good thing you didn't suggest it because. I would want, I would overcommit. I'd be like, well, if we're going to do it, we got to do it right. And I would get a legitimate whole lamb's leg and then have to throw out 90% of it. Cause I, you know, what's but a bachelor going to do with a lamb leg? We could have filmed you cooking it, which I think would probably be our most viewed episode. Ooh, good point. Uh, good thing that we didn't though. <laughs> Cause <laughs> filming me cooking it would go even more poorly than just me eating it on a podcast. Uh, so. <laughs> We talked at length last episode about whether or not we find the sheriff department's uh, sheriff's department's willingness to go along with Cooper's intuition and uh, deductive technique realistic or not. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about what Cooper the, the shit that Cooper pulls in Jacques Renault's apartment this episode? Because I feel like. After a discussion last time, it would have raised all of your hackles. <laughs> uh, what what specifically are you referring to, though? Um, so Doc Hay- Doc Hayward also has a lot of screen time this episode. I he's was palling around. Say, um, <laughs> did they need to bring him? <laughs> he's one of the gang. <laughs> um, so he talks about the shirt with blood on it and just says that the blood is AB negative. And then Cooper pulls that uh, the blood 
wasn't Jacques Renault's, I think. Anyway, mm, Cooper just no, makes it. No, it is Jacques. Anyway, it wasn't Jacques. I think. No, it is. Is that what the is that what the call Hayward gets confirms? Yeah, because it's Leo's shirt. It has Jacques Renault's blood on it, and then Shelley goes on to like frame okay. Leo. Keep in mind, before they know, he just knows the blood type right off the bat. And then Hayward gets a call confirming whatever it is. Sorry, I should have made more detailed notes. My notes, by the way, look like the scribblings of a uh, a very scatterbrained... Um, <laughs> a very scatterbrained writer trying to think of names for characters <laughs> because most of what i actually have on here are just names with then like two words next to it so i literally have a line that just says jerry exclamation point <laughs> odin exclamation point so you, you know, should uh, scan these in so people can see see your insights no i don't know why you want to put everybody uh face to face with my process but you don't want to show them like you could easily upload your episode notes do that it would be fine (laughs) you just aren't volunteering it but you're volunteering mine freely (laughs) well yours have more character because they're handwritten yeah you know this is a this is an artisanal uh podcast (laughs) anyway cooper makes the the blood type connection Mm -hmm. just off the top of his dome Mm -hmm. and then finds the magazine opens up the magazine is just able to say, like, yup, that's Laura, but his reasoning is because the red curtains, and then also, while Harry's trying to keep up, is like, also, did you notice Leo's truck? And then, whoop. See, that shit all, like, makes sense to me. But his only reasoning for identifying that that girl's body in the photo that we can't see the face of is Laura is because he makes the same thing, or it's just like, it's my dream. It's my dream. It's the red curtains. Yeah, but I think there's like other um, like forensic information that could confirm that pretty easily. Like he's seen the corpse. But the thing he points to, like I, he takes out his magnifying he glass as that. though they're going to, as though they're going to like point, like, oh, that's definitely like something about Laura's body that I know. But then he's just like curtains, and. I, I, I don't know. Like, I think after last week's episode, this scene suddenly, like, suddenly I found myself feeling more what you were feeling last week, where it's just like, wait a minute. Harry, if he's doing his cop thing, uh, which he abandons in his own way this episode, yeah. uh, if he's doing his cop thing, he should just, at the very least, I would expect, like, a wow <laughs> out of Harry to est- further establish the... Uh, kind of like respect that he has for cooper but he just kind of stands there like i feel like yeah guy doesn't even have a lot of lines this episode that's true but i think that like all of the inferences that he makes in jacques renault's apartment while they're like technically founded in his dream i think that there's other evidence that points to the conclusions that he makes and if not that then there's certainly that whole chain of inferences that leads to finding uh the envelope with the uh, letters for Ronette that pretty much confirms everything that he's just said, regardless of how shakily it's founded. Like that's pretty convincing. If they hadn't found that, it would have been like, well, why are we doing this? We'd already be in the hour 30 mark of our overly long podcast, rehashing the same discussion from last week. Uh, How did you feel about that letter that Ronette received that they go through? I felt weird about it. I feel like it was a cheap, like, look, it's a man in a dress joke, which yeah. is so, so done, and I never want to see again. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I also just like also like feel... it's a it's a it's such a like maybe this is part of being raised with the internet, but in terms of a shorthand for what constitutes like dirty perversion, we given that they're trying <laughs> they're trying to connect this to this magazine that like was part of like like very much not um kind sex work right like this is like this is very much like the exploitative side of that right 100 percent. but then their shorthand for network television audiences is it's a man in a dress i'm just like that's so fucking lazy and not even shocking yeah like, that's not even a thing yeah. like that moment could have played so much better if it was just the reaction that the photo got yeah. without seeing it. Oh my it. god, you're right. Um, but instead they go for this like weird cheap sight gag. Which we're going to like kind funny. of see again later in a different form. But there's also like it just reminds me it's like the 1990s version of sending someone a dick pic. Huh. I mean, there's no dick, but like it's that kind of a dick Polaroid, they would have called it. A dick Polaroid. Yeah. Um, but it's that kind of, like, unsolicited... I mean, it's, like, solicited, but it's, like, very presumptuous about, like, the person receiving the photo and how they're going to feel about it. There's kind of no preamble or, like, forte involved. And, no. Eh. Yeah. Now, on the subject of weird sex stuff... I'm making air quotes, listeners at home. Weird sex stuff. Let's talk about... Safe sex and guns. <laughs> because what Bobby and Shelly are doing in their foreplay with Bob every time Bobby swings that that pistol with the pearl grips around in the next scene, it's like if I were to make a commentary track, I'd just be like, Whoa, 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 watch out. <laughs> Shelly. <laughs> to the point where he's like straight up caressing her with the gun pointed at her and he's i'm not like a gun nut um but i've been around the internet <laughs> this this will come up a lot i learned most things about the world from chance encounters on the internet mm-hmm. so i know what quote unquote trigger discipline is and he's Ooh. got his finger on the trigger of the gun at oh, all yeah. times, which you're oh, not yeah. supposed to do oh, ever. Yeah. If you're just if you're not intending to fire it at something, you don't do that. And he's not intending to fire it. He is intending to get down dirty with Shelly. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is the worst, Bobby. But I feel for him later in the episode. Can we talk just in general about Dana Ashbrook's performance in this episode? I love it. I'm so into it. A, like, him talking to hypothetical Leo, very into that, like, over-the-top Bobby shit that we've seen in most episodes. You know what I just remembered? There's this web series. I can't for the life of me remember the name of it. I'm going to make a note and try and do a a shout-out to it uh, next episode. But it was a web series following the dating life of a woman and Dana Ashbrook appears at one point as Whoa. like one of her potential online suitors. And I think what he does is sends a dick pic just to make oh. that connection to what we were talking about. And Dana Ashbrook. <laughs> All right. Dana Ashbrook <laughs> does a dick pic in a totally different show. That's not Twin Peaks. There you go. All right. Any- or maybe I'm remembering wrong. Maybe it's a different. I'm pretty sure. No. Because you know what he looks like now. Yeah. He's got like this straight up like silver fox hair. Yeah, uh, so it's an incredible jawline. Yes, uh, he aged very well. Yeah. Definitely, definitely would be happy He's to see there. him appear on the revival. Yeah. And like you're saying, his performance this episode is great. Yeah, but then we go from the over-the-top big gun safety violation. Yeah, Bobby. <laughs> to um, the scene with Dr. Jacoby... 
um, where we see kind of a different side of Bobby. Yeah, uh, we see a real... I have forgotten about this scene. Um, Like, I wasn't anticipating it on this rewatch. But it stands out more to me now, like a lot of things, because I saw Fire Walk With Me. And this this is like where we fill in, I feel like, as much as we're going to get of Bobby's backstory prior to Laura's death, exclusive of watching that movie. Right. Um, Because... Suddenly, all of his weird, like, dog barking, which sparked (laughs) theories about dog barking cults, uh, and even his unsafe gun practices around uh, Shelly are suddenly explained in this one moment by him just, like, both, like, breaking down and then opening up to Jacoby and revealing that none of this, like, tough guy stuff was really that much of his... Like, in terms of, like, what he's actually doing with the drugs and so forth, yeah. seems to have been his idea. I mean, he probably still has, like, a shitty personality. Uh, well, I bet what it was, like, I mean, I think what the scene, or at least we can talk about whether or not in therapy, you know, we can try to psychologize a character and try to pick apart whether or not Bobby's actually opening up to Jacoby or telling a story to Jacoby or a story or, to himself. I mean, like, Jacoby's being pretty leading with his questions. Yeah. Um, but if we take it kind of at face value, I think what we get the idea of is like, yeah, Bobby was probably the shitty, like, mean bully quarterback right? prior to dating Laura. And then Laura, in her dark place, seized on that mm-hmm. and then kind of pulled him into this thing that he didn't necessarily want to be a part of. Right. And it makes the scene... Uh, where he goes like afraid and then like suddenly yeah, bursts out those yeah. masculinities being questioned by his dad make more sense if yeah. we kind of take that as who Bobby was mm-hmm. and oh my god Jacoby's question was like did you cry like that's, <laughs> did she laugh at you did she, like that's but the thing is like that's so intense like it's I remember first watching it and being like wow that's like really mean but i think what's weird about jacoby's character is that his over-the-top presentation uh and his like undoubted like not okay (laughs) patient uh relationship with laura bleeding into these other people he's seeing and talking Mm to um we talked about him skirting confidentiality last episode like he's clearly got all that wrong but, like, he knows Laura, and he knows enough just from, like, first glance at Bobby to mm-hmm. immediately hit on that and, like, well, isn't break he, him open. like, using information that he has from his sessions with Laura kind of against Bobby? Yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely the possibility that Laura has told him all that information. Yeah. But rather than see that as being, like, a bullying tactic on his part, which is, I think, how I came to the scene earlier... Like, thinking about it, I'm just like, Jacoby's clearly got weird motives here, but I don't think he's trying to, like, break Bobby. I think he's trying to help Bobby figure out who he is, but in I the weird, like, through, look at... through, like, really manipulative means that, I mean, like, kind I'm of saying, aren't appropriate. <laughs> I'm saying I bet Jacoby as a character is, or in his presentation, is one who, like, he thinks he's got his own life figured out but look at him he's got his 3d glasses on constantly <laughs> and has his like admittedly i think his uh his uh office is pretty dopely uh decorated yeah. but it's if he thinks he's got himself figured out what who is that um 
but I don't... Another... I'm trying to be generous in my reading of the scene by saying it's not just, like, a malicious thing, and it's really just a help... It's definitely a helpful scene to get a sense of who Bobby is. No, yeah, totally. I think it's, like, important for the plot, but I don't think that, like, it's without... Like, maybe it doesn't have malicious intent, but that doesn't mean that the actions and the behavior isn't malicious in and of itself. It's certainly not necessarily a good thing for a psychologist to do. Yeah, exactly. To basically use these personal secrets that he knows about Bobby, that Bobby doesn't know that Dr. Jacoby knows. He should probably know at this point. Bobby's smart enough. He should be putting that together. But But he's not one of our mystery kids. Laura was keeping it a secret from people that she was seeing a psychiatrist. This is true. My and other question is, like, why is he practicing in Twin Peaks and who are his patients besides Laura? Is that really a question? This episode, we spent some time with Margaret, a.k.a. the log lady, a.k.a. the person who talks to a log. Like, as far as... Is like, she filling up his schedule? Because this is a town of 5,000 people and he is financing trips to Hawaii. Look, we have to assume, I think one of the implicit assumptions one has to make when they come to Twin Peaks is that as weird as the people we see in the cast are, there have to be, like, the only other types of people living in this town are, like, one of two categories. Like, real salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar types They probably all work at the mill and they're probably all going to be out of a job soon when it burns down. Or they're also weird as hell. Yeah, I can think of at least one other person who is probably seeing Dr. Jacoby. Who's that? The uh, the guy that we oh, uh, Donna yeah. meets later. Yeah, I can think of another person who's probably seen Jacoby. The girl who runs across the quad in the high school in the pilot. Who we been? <laughs> we don't really know how she knows or what her deal is. But I mean, she probably is seeing him. Probably. Yeah, grief counseling. Yeah. <laughs> he's actually. Um, that's probably how he's financing his trip to Hawaii is through grief counseling. Look, he lives in this small town where a. Probably a sizable percentage of the town believes in a dark presence that lives in the woods. And a lot of people seem to be really concerned with the avian life around the city, or around the town, rather, being all weird. I think he's probably doing fine. Also, it's probably cheaper to book trips to Hawaii then. Probably. Also, you can be thrifty about it. You can... You can go to resorts that are newly opening in their kind of test phases and get a really great deal. Don't ask me how I know that. Anyway, um, I think there's one other important thing, though, from that scene, um, and that's kind of Bobby's description of Laura um, and her efforts to, like, make the world a better place that then draw her back into the darkness, which I think explains a lot of the, like, kind of dual personality that we're seeing revealed where she's doing Meals on Wheels and, like, tutoring people in English and, like, uh, helping out with Johnny. And then she also has this, like, very dark personal life that seems like a lot of people were fairly privy to yeah but i think on the usenet boards in particular um people are kind of confused about how this is all one person Hmm. well i bet one of those theories that it was always two people all along isn't it is that one of the theories yes yeah figures okay um Um, of course there would be that theory what with maddie um also Maddie, do we do we want to do food in the middle of the episode? We haven't done that before. We can leave it till the end. Let's leave it till the end. But it's from the it's our food this episode, spoiler, comes from the scene the one scene with Maddie this episode. Uh outfit point number two, Maddie's sweater. Really great. She has great sweaters. Um just fantastic. While we're talking about scenes that are supposed to reveal a lot about characters, 
uh, though, before we see Maddie meet with Donna and James, we get a Donna and James scene. And I, oh. I bet you didn't take down notes because you're no. like committed to not talking about those. <laughs> but it's like trying to be a really important moment as they have this like weird sunlit gazebo meeting. It's so soapy. Yeah. And then James spills this whole backstory about his mom, who was a really great writer, but now she just gets drunk in different towns and sleeps around with a lot of men. And this is like to explain James's kind of his whole deal essentially yeah. is supposed to be explained Don't by this. His dad left. His dad was a musician. He comes from artistic temperament. Yeah. Um, and I love the exposure we get to James's artistic temperament later on in the show. Just wait. Um, but, but this, I, it's just, it doesn't work for me as a scene because it is all just this exposition. It's not just that it's James and Donna. It's like of the James and Donna scenes, it's the one where it's just like, what? If someone that you were seeing, like, called this specific meeting with you to, like, just dump some baggage on you, and, like, not saying that, like, your background is baggage, but, like, that's how James is, like, treating this information about himself, and this mm-hmm. is how he's presenting it as, like, a, you know, is this gonna break our relationship? Does this bother you? Like, that in and of itself bothers me the way that, like, a person like that might dramatize their own life. Yeah. And... How let's, that would impede on one's relationship. Let's move away from the two characters it seems like you and I dislike the most. And on to the characters I like the most. Namely, Nadine and Ed. Drape Runner Corner. Drape Runner Corner. Welcome to it. We don't see Nadine this episode. Because Nadine, uh, gotta love her. She's off. She's off at the patent office. She is going to launch silent drape runners and gonna revolutionize the world kudos to nadine so instead we have to get a scene with norma now norma's man she's got her own man he's out of prison she should be happy but no she wants to ruin the great thing between nadine and ed Mm -hmm. and i tell you i just Ed says to her, Nadine's not well, because you know that Ed, he's there, he's a protector, he cares about Nadine, he's not going to break her heart, because they're truly meant to be together. And then I think Norma leaves without even getting gas, or at least paying for gas, which is like a real middle finger. Also, she's like, don't call me for a while, uh, I don't think he's gonna, he just broke it off with you, girl, okay Norma? Stop trying to make this all about you. Go back to your really shady domino-sucking man (laughs) and let Ed and Nadine be lifted aloft on the currents of money that are about to come pouring into their life from silent drape runners. Also, technical point, the exterior of Big Ed's gas farm this episode is so clearly not the washington location it really bothered me because they only show a corner of the building for a reason and it's the most bright and sunny california landscape you could possibly imagine but the first episode it's clear this little roadside gas station in like the mistiest mountain range ever it's like those two could not be further from the same place bad job location scouts Or maybe it's symbolizing the light and warmth pouring into Ed's life now that he's decided to stay with Nadine. Maybe? It's probably that. It is probably that. 
See, I can analyze film and TV with the best of them. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you want to talk about something else now? You didn't seem too into Drape Runner Corner this week. I didn't have a lot to contribute to Drape Runner Corner this week. I have some stuff from Usenet that we'll get to, but nothing from me personally. Oh, well, then let's talk about Norma some more, I guess. I feel like we're skipping an important scene, though. Which is... Audrey's best look of the episode. Oh, we were going to get there. Is that after Norma? Maybe it is. The podcast doesn't need to go step by step with the episode. We usually do, though. Yeah, but then we end up with a two hour long episode when we go on tangents. Okay. <laughs> the only other point I want to have about Norma, and it's also about Shelly, is oh my god, their hair when they come back from their yes. spa day. Yes, oh my god. <laughs> uh, I also, though, really like that. Um, that Norma is like a business owner mm-hmm. and like a, a businesswoman uh, in this setup, and that she kind of has that control over Hank. She, yeah, makes him a dishwasher. Yep. Uh, Hank being just as scuzzy as possible, like, and it's so fitting because later he decks Leo. Actually, like, really hurts Leo. Yeah. Um, uh, though that's not the least of Leo's, that's not the the worst of Leo's problems this episode. Not at all. Um, totally goes after Leo, but they're characterized the same way, which is like, these are bad men. Bad, bad men. <laughs> Do not well, trust. Well, I think what's interesting is kind of there's been this, like, continual reveal of, like, a new, like, top dog and this, like, crime ring that's going on. Yeah. Like, it was, like, Bobby and Mike for a while, and then we found out that Leo was kind of holding the her strings on that operation Mm -hmm. and now we find out that he leo is just kind of a placeholder for hank while he's been in prison for manslaughter for the last yeah five years six years (sighs) so you want to talk about um one of uh i think i think he only appears twice but i feel like he's pretty memorable in terms of like side side characters minor characters in the show emery battis uh, oh, is that the? That's the that's the guy at Horns. You want to talk about Audrey and her her interview for Horns? Yes. yes. Um, well, let's get to it. What's working for you about that look? Um, I love that she's doing something different with her hair. Her mm-hmm. hair is actually noticeably longer in this episode. She's doing a little more with it. She's pinning it back. Um, I love the like black on black look. Yeah, it always suits her. Um, but there is also something that really bothers me about this scene. Can you guess what it is? Is it the part where she gets what she wants by threatening to fake, uh, untoward interaction? Yes. Yes. Bothers me too. I guess I'm, it could be worse, but it still stands out as like a particularly like, like, yes, Audrey's character is established as being, like, very smart and able to navigate situations like these, but that's not, like, a smart solution either. It's just, like, a, like, kind of really raw, manipulative tactic. I don't know. I think it's also poor writing. I mean, like, you see, uh, you see this as a plot device in some pieces of media where a woman threatens to pretend she's being raped or has been raped or um, goes through with it. Um, I think the most recent example is Gone Girl, in which 
Um, oh, right. I haven't. I don't know. I don't know what happens in that movie actually. Hmm. Uh, Wait, are you going to talk about the book or the movie? Because I understand the they have different endings. Okay. I yeah, I haven't read the book. Um, I have seen the movie. Um, but there's this whole plot line where um, Amy, uh, the wife of uh, Ben, the the, the titular Nick. girl. Yes, the titular Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Who um, <laughs> henceforth referred to as the Gone Girl. The Gone Girl. Um, basically, like stages and fakes these scenes of like domestic abuse um like in her diary and like elsewhere in her life and sets up this whole thing um and then there's like another plot line about like staging or kind of restaging um a scene of like rape and sexual assault um it's just like um I think like a pretty misogynist plot device to use because it kind of says that like women have one thing and it's their sexuality. Yeah. And women make fake rape accusations, yeah, which is it, not true. It creates this like sensibility in popular media where like that's a thing that would happen sometimes and it's Or like quite often. Yeah. And that then makes it much harder for people to have their real stories and real accusations taken seriously. Yeah. I don't like it. It's not a great plot device at all. Yeah, it made me really uncomfortable. Um, so, misstep for Audrey's characterization, you'd say? I would think so, yeah. I think that that dude is... I don't know. For some reason... Like, he's such a small part of this... A small but, like, very important link in this, like, messed up criminal enterprise that's going on between so many different actors in Twin Peaks right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, he's the person who decides to put girls at the perfume counter yeah. to signal them for one-eyed jacks. Um, but, like, for that reason, he's memorable. And I think the guy's performance, I didn't look up the actor's name, but I just, like, oh, yeah, it's that dude. Like, he's not a forgettable part of Twin Peaks, whereas there have been multiple scenes where it's just, like, or the scene, for instance, uh, at the end of this episode with all uh, the Icelandic investors, where it's just like, wow, they're just like, they're, they like, have these long shots where they're like watching the, the dance that's happening yeah. between uh, uh, Catherine and Leland later. It's like, none of them are like characterized in interesting ways. Yeah. And even Hepa is just talked at by Jerry for the most part, which is, and also, yeah. as much as I like Jerry, his gene pool line does not work for me. I hate <laughs> it. So it's like there's so many actors that come in and out of the show who then you're just like, what? Like, oh, okay. I guess that was a person there in a yeah. scene. But anyway, what else do we want to talk about? We haven't talked about Maddie uh, and her interaction with uh, James and Donna, which at least improves the James Donna scene by having Maddie in it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we did touch on her sweater, though. Uh, and she talks a lot about like she she has that thing about like kind of like the psychic link she has with laura yeah or the oh supposed psychic link where she knows the day before like the twin peaks murdered. astral plane is highly populated have you ever had an experience like that no <laughs> this is where we go kind of x-files and then i like test like your personal uh belief in the kind of themes that or like supernatural <laughs> themes that the show puts in <laughs> So you you've never have you ever had like an out of body experience? Um, not irrespective of uh, 
Yeah, no, uh, not illegal substances. <laughs> <laughs> My mom listens to this podcast. <laughs> well, that's why I'm saying like you wouldn't talk about it if you had. Exactly. But no, no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah. Um I I actually had a spooky thing though happen kind of recently. Was that? Um there was um a fatal accident in Portland a couple of months ago. And, um, the day that it happened, but after the scene had already been cleared, um, me and a couple friends were driving through that specific intersection, Mm -hmm. not knowing what had happened. And we were talking about a couple of other recent deaths that had occurred and Mm. we cited two of them. And then I remember as we were driving through the intersection, I said, well, I hate to say this, but rule of threes. Oh man. Nope. That makes me feel awful. What I was about to say just like now completely pales in comparison. <laughs> this suddenly is not a fun part of the podcast for me. I'm Maybe sorry. Maybe we should move but, on. <laughs> uh, there were, I feel like I talked to a couple of other people around that time who had similar spooky things. The rule of threes thing, well, in particular, I don't like that as like a mimetic thing because it's always a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like always when someone says it, like, yeah. Something is going to happen within enough time that you, like, latch on to and care about. Yeah, and then you, like, like just group it together. Yeah, which doesn't make, like, any of the kind of, like, mourning or recovering processes for those any easier. Because, like, people will always say it with celebrities. And it's like, yeah, actually, there are lots of famous people in the world who have done important things. And the likelihood of one of them, like, passing away is, in total, like not that unrealistic so it happens but then it's constantly like making sometimes these false connections uh between like the the three Mm -hmm. and and just like putting this weird attitude over it and i don't like it and now i feel very uncomfortable sorry sorry i'm sorry i just kind of put you on blast for saying the whole rule of things three things but that's why it bothers me personally um that and the oh my god i this is this one's like substantially stupider i know you would say that but okay. the no hope no cash no jobs thing wait what no hope no cash no jobs bob hope johnny cash steve jobs oh, deaths that happened what? like far apart and have like no relationship but it's also just like a meme where it's just like oh hope. i literally had not heard of that until just this moment like hope obama economy that kind of like terrible terrible you haven't seen that meme before no it's the worst I haven't been on Tumblr recently, so I think it's I'm not out a of... Tumblr meme. This is like this what is like, meme is this? <laughs> this is like normie America Twitter meme. Like maybe that's what I'm missing. Then I don't. Have you don't any... follow enough normies on Twitter, clearly, no, or no. people who reblog the best out of. <laughs> was that your thing? <laughs> Here's, no, it's not my thing. I was gonna talk about this like vaguely creepy thing that happened, but now I don't. Now I don't have it in me. Now I don't feel like it anymore. Well, now I'm really curious about this creepy thing. Uh, it was just going to be me going on about my sleep paralysis oh. again. So we'll save it for another time or for when it happens to me next. Um, no, I'll, I'll say I'll say my piece on it. In addition to that, I feel like I get these moments of deja vu, like, strikingly often. Wait, um, from dreams? Um both from dreams sometimes, but also, like, just as I'm going about my day. Uh-huh. Like, and I've talked to some other people about this before, and in 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 my like small sample size i feel like i get deja vu a hell of a lot more than other people how often um every couple weeks 
Like every few weeks, I have like an intense moment of deja vu. And then I've heard that some people link that to neurological things. So I have one of two ways of looking at it. Either I can believe that something weird's going on uh-huh. and just maybe accept a little bit of perhaps magical realism into my life as a, as a kind of thing that. It's a plot device. Well, as a, as a. Look, there are definitely unhealthy ways in which to characterize your own personal experience and like narrativizing too much is like one of those ways mm-hmm. but a little bit can go to at least make you oh, not yeah. then like experience well, anxiety yeah. about what if my brain's going to break from something yeah. that can't be diagnosed yeah see that's why i don't want to talk about it it's because it has to do with my own mortality at the end of it so but i have deja vu a lot too what's the point i was gonna make great now I feel not so bad. Or maybe we can both <laughs> haunt people as a result of our brain problems. Eventually, no, this we're is terrible. We're just going to send to the this astral awful. Plane. And we're 40-something 40, like, 40 minutes in, we're going to go long again. And we just spent this time talking about impending death. I was already saying I felt too old for a 22-year-old to feel. <laughs> and then we got here. What is this podcast? It's Twin Peaks Peaks. Every week we discuss an episode of Twin Peaks. Um, so next on the discussion docket, uh, let's see here. Um, we could talk about the cabin and Log Lady. One point that I have that we kind of glossed over is the performances by Dana Ashbrook and James Marshall, respectively, and how acting is a spectrum. <laughs> I think that's all you need to talk about there, right? You're just you're just putting the crosshairs squarely on James Marshall and saying, "Hey, I'm not the only person that up. felt this of way." Of course, you're not. I also. I feel mean, this it's way. also it's also like the writing that he's given, and to a certain extent, it's like this is probably um, a purposeful construction to have this like super soapy storyline. But ultimately, am I interested in it? And do I find James compelling as a character? No. Let's talk about the cabin. Let's talk more about the sheriff and investigative techniques. Harry is the one who is of the most in tune with, let's listen to what the log lady has to say. Yeah. And I find myself wishing that we did know a little bit more. Well, one, we learned the log lady's name, Margaret. We learned a little bit about her backstory Mm -hmm. and what happened to her husband. Namely, he died right after the wedding and Uh that... Apparently, the log holds many spirits, one of which is presumably her deceased husband. Mm-hmm. Spirits would, and we'd get a lot of talk from the wood, from the log, about owls, which the owls we will, are really important. We will continue to hear about, but we get what is, I think, given what they. I don't know how much the the public is reasonably expected to know or knows at this point. I mean, I think they showed that the train car was discovered on TV, Uh right? Um, But what she says, like, lines up with a narrative of what happened the night Laura died. So there's, like, some credibility to it. But Harry is the one who, like, gestures to Cooper, like, talk to the log. Listen to it. Take it seriously. Cooper's not diving in being like, Tibetan Zen, y'all, let's let's listen to this log. Like, he's a little, he's, like, visibly a little bit more apprehensive about it. And the point that I wanted to make in contrast to what I said last week about Cooper's comments Mm -hmm. about Occam's razor and investigative methods is that Harry has a compelling reason to believe the log lady because he is familiar with her and he probably has past experiences with her that has proven her unique 
connection with the log to hold value. But then I want to know, but now it's like that alone is making me, it's, it's one thing when it's a bit like Cooper's more in the position relative to the other characters in the scene of like being the like kind of like magical investigator Cooper. But the log lady is so clearly more on another plane. And then mm. it's like, it would be nice if for Cooper's sake, as the audience cipher, we got a little bit more than we get. We get some about Margaret in mm. the scene, but to know deeper her connection to the mysteries at play and uh-huh. maybe what light in the past she has shed for the sheriff on the darkness in the woods, if any, would be great because this is where I feel like I'm starting to to see some some holes in the narrative is they have this history and they have even this secret society, which then again has been like kind of on the DL since the two episodes it was mentioned yep. uh, that is related somehow to this kind of superstition or story about the woods, which itself at this point does not appear to be fleshed out in the slightest, but we know something gives Harry faith in the log lady and we don't mm-hmm. know what that is either. And I, some connective tissue for there would, would mean a lot to me because I feel like there's got to be something there. And it would be a great reveal for maybe the revival as to, like, Ooh. what had happened before. Yeah. But then I'm just like, I can see it being a little bit hard now to take it at face value. When you when you put Cooper and the Logley in the same box, suddenly my perspective has shifted. I'm just like, no, Cooper needs to be asking questions now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I like that the log lady like remains a mysterious figure mostly because she's a recurring character and we're not expected to follow some kind of character development arc for the log lady. Mm-hmm. Whereas with characters where there is like an arc that we are following, I do feel like more exposition is appropriate. But I think that the degree of mystery um, works as a plot device. Um, and to a certain, like I see what you're saying. I really do because on the one hand, uh, Sheriff Truman was like, let me introduce you to this weird secret society and talk to you about the mystery in the woods. And like, It feels like there should, shed be, a, some light. There should be like a big leather-bound book or something that's passed to Cooper yeah. that we see him thumbing through later, but there's not. Yeah. Um, but it also feels like kind of appropriate that um, the people who live in Twin Peaks are just like familiar with her enough that they don't right. have to comment on it. I think one saving grace about her coming in and providing this information or the log providing it via her uh, at this point is that they do just find her cabin. It also like, here's something they just don't know where the cabin is. And they're just kind of, kind of like go out in the woods and look for it. (laughs) It's what seemingly happens. Do you think there's like a deleted scene of Tibetan Zen meditation (laughs) on like locations (laughs) Um, or, or, Maybe a regrettable scene of like Hawk doing some more tracking oh, that no. leads them on the initial right path. They found a a, a scrap of a French Canadian plaid that they need to go probably. Follow. I don't know. Um, more type AB negative blood. Yeah. Uh, what I think then kind of makes it work, so long as you suspend your disbelief that much more, is that they do run across her cabin mm-hmm. as they're as they're looking for the other cabin. Right. Is like so in a in a kind of like things will unfold as they're meant to perspective, then this is this is portentous. Um, um it reminds me a little bit of the island from Lost. With uh with you're talking like about Russo? Lo- no, but oh. it, like the changing locations of the island. That's I'm just drawing this out of straight up nowhere. But like, <laughs> more lo- but more like lost the island like needing to be or being where it kind of needs to be more or less. Do you think that the that they I mean 
Harry trusts the log lady, yet apparently doesn't know this is where she lives. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or at least that she has this cabin. Yeah. Are you saying you think her cabin moves around? (laughs) Um, Do you think that there's a wheel that's that was once lashed to lashed to a polar bear underneath her cabin that'll pop it around the woods? I think the smoke monster probably lives in her basement. Okay, because now we're not even talking about motive and investigative tactics or anything. We're just <laughs> bullshit. So let's cut to the next scene. But um, there is like that mystical quality about her that I... I'll say one thing. I'm never like, oh, why the hell are they talking to the log lady because of her performance? Catherine Coulson is great. Yeah. Uh, part of the character, like for any faults in terms of how the character ties into the mystery or provides information or anything, um, you can't deny that her performance is just like awesome. Slapping away Cooper's hand when he's too mm-hmm. quick to reach for the cookies uh and that is a writing detail like that he is kind of beyond not necessarily knowing what her credentials are he's just like not part of the norms either exactly Um, yeah you know wait for the wait for the tea okay Mm -hmm. um also tea decidedly not cooper's drink Mm -hmm. Eh? there's Eh. also no cake yeah um Rewind a bit. Ugh, I can't stop thinking about that big, beautiful plate of donuts earlier that they bring into the apartment. <laughs> you it's, texted me about that plate of donuts. Yeah. I mean, I know that we shouldn't repeat, especially this early into the podcast, but I would have been fine if we were doing donuts today. I know. It made I was me kind of really thinking we, we did that prematurely. We'll, we'll get there and we'll do Tenali's or something and it'll be great. Anyway, um, that's a donut place in town for reference. Let's keep this podcast moving. Let's... Uh, yeah. Um... One question that I have for you is, do you, this is like, has been my assumption about the log lady and the log for a lot of Twin Peaks. Um, and I want to see if you're thinking along the same lines. Do you think that the log is more or less in a very practical, literal sense within the bounds of the story, just a kind of a filter away for her, or the log lady to talk about things that she's seen? Like when, uh, when she says oh, the so, log has seen this, so it's an affectation. Yeah. Do you think that I like, refrain from commenting on this because you haven't finished watching the show? No. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> if that is if that isn't a thing to to get your mind raising, I don't know what okay. is. Okay. <laughs> um, this this dynamic. I don't have time to marathon this this weekend. So yeah. Um, this dynamic of you having not seen those episodes. I know you want to keep it so that we have some reactions. I know, yeah. Later on the that's show. why I'm doing it. But I'm just saying, keep in mind when I'm leveling these things about the log lady. That's also using information. This is also for the listeners' sake. Like some of this may sound weird, or that like aren't Ashley and Matt on the same wavelength? They both enjoy the show. There is, like, some stuff in the latter half of season two as off the rails and low quality as it gets at its points that do, I feel like, fill out the world a little bit more for better or worse Mm -hmm. and make some of the things that, you know, I come to and I'm just like, that's just Twin Peaks. That's the show. That's how it works. It's good. It's great. Uh, Different for you or I Mm -hmm. uh, or different between you and I. The next cabin on mm-hmm. um, another instance of using uh, in this case Julie Cruz and Angelo Badalamenti's music, right. but in the world of the show, mm-hmm. like they had with Audrey's dancing at the double R. Yeah, in this case, it's playing on that phonograph. Um, makes me think of another creepy phonograph skipping scene. Can you guess what it's from? No. 
It's from the Doctor Who TV movie, okay, filmed six okay. years later. I was not, not relevant. Get that, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to see if I could wedge that in again this week. Um, uh, so in this cabin, there are the red drapes. There's some twine. I have to refer back to uh, my mom's text messages because she recapped this scene for me after watching it. Red drape, uh, drapes. Dwape. Um, red <laughs> drapes, twine. The bird, Waldo the bird. Bird the, in the cage, yes. Uh, the, po- the poker chip with this one is... part missing. Right. <laughs> and the camera. Can we just, though... Why are those, there's no, I've been scratching my head about this and it always confuses me when I watch this episode. Why are the poker chips in the cuckoo clock? I mean, those are worth like a thousand dollars each. Wouldn't you put them in a safe place? When the clock goes, they, they spring out. That doesn't seem, oh. that's hardly a safe place. <laughs> yeah. Let's set aside the fact that, that the... That seems... Yeah, that seems flawed. Why aren't they just, like, scattered across the floor? Let's set aside the fact that the one that pops out that Cooper catches is the one that's missing the J so pointedly. But just the fact that they're in there, it seems like like you have to have been doing a lot of cocaine and questionable things to then be like, uh, oh, I know where the good <laughs> poker chips are safe. You <laughs> ram in the cuckoo clock. Um, I guess if you think about it that way, if it's, like, a drug craze thing, maybe it makes sense, but... They should have come out. Yeah, How many hours like, have passed since people like were in that they cabin? Had, you know, a lot of time to figure this out. No one was in a hurry. To me, the the theory I came up with this episode was they had to set dress the cabin really quick. weren't exactly sure what they were going to have mm-hmm. when they were writing the scene, and then they uh-huh. had to be like, "How do we visually display the this, 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 and this?" As a in visual the gag, I'm like down with it, <laughs> but you really can't explain that kind of choice. <laughs> yeah, um, from a character perspective. So, any other comments other than, like, yep, it seems that at this point, what they're setting up, interpreting Cooper's dream is, or Cooper's dream as is, it was a dream that was a coded message patently about this place, this cabin. Mm -hmm. And the cousin, Mm -hmm. Maddie, who Cooper hasn't met yet. Yes. Um, And then... So, none of what we saw in the dream could possibly at all have any bearing on what's actually physically happening in Twin Peaks. Because we have all this, like, all these physical one-to-ones. We have Maddie, we have the, the cabin, all the elements Well, of the there's, like, still stuff that's not accounted for. Like, like what, Ashley? Like the statue, the creepy statue, the man from another place. It's all just dream logic. We're not ever gonna actually see these things manifest, right? Ugh. Stop. <laughs> that's the that's the thing that I will never be able to separate myself out. Like, we already said the name once on the show a couple episodes back in reference to Cooper's Dream. But that's something that, as someone who then, first time watching the show, had the privilege of binge-watching it all at once, is that Usenet at this point, like, I imagine has to be spinning about, like, oh, all these things... Like, in his dream, are now here in the real. There was um, actually only one thread about that. That's, like, but that's what the show is, like, hitting know, you over the head with in this episode. Um, and then the show does what it wants to later on. Do you think Cooper's regardless. feeling a strong sense of deja vu in that room? Mm. No. If I had to, like, if I had to contextualize them coming across the like in the grand scheme of things them coming across the cabin in this episode 
is not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the dream itself is so much bigger of a deal. Yeah. Um, it does tie up a lot of loose threads, though. That seems like the kind of thing that Cooper, like, for all I take in from these episodes on this rewatch, like... That almost seems like too simple at a point. Like he yeah. can he can be like, oh, point at the magazine. There's Leo's truck. But at a certain point, when you see everything gathered in one place, like maybe maybe these are the dark forces conspiring against you, trying to obscure the truth. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it is also like the scene of the crime. It's not like a crime scene. Yes. It's like the scene of the crime. There is at least physical evidence tying um, the point by point of what happened. Yes, one point the people were here ronette uh ronette um laura jock everyone was there gathered in that place um but already there's clearly like other things at play or at least we're being told about them two episodes ago because there's a secret society and then they're being set aside force Um, in the woods yeah and people like the log lady putting stock in owls and whether or not they're things and or whether or not places were blocked. Um, that was a line that stood out to me from that earlier cabin scene. Mm. Um, this is this idea of we're talking about a spirit that inhabits a log apparently, or maybe it's a cipher for the log lady, but either way, somehow she, she or the log cannot see something because something is interfering. Like right. we're getting these little hints, but then what the episode's hitting you over the head with otherwise it's like, hey, here's the physical crime scene and it links up with this dream. Therefore, dream logic. Like anyway. Yeah. Um, We've officially passed the hour mark. Uh, but it's great because we only have essentially the Great Northern to talk about at this point. Oh, the but Great we Northern also Shelley's have house. The, yeah, I was gonna say we have the big cliffhanger. And we have to talk about our food. Gosh. And the production notes and use that. So. <laughs> no! All right, let's get moving at a fast pace then. I'm going to say, okay. what are we talking about next, Ashley? I was just going to talk about Shelly's house unless you wanted to talk about the Great Northern. Um, do we want to talk about what happens at the very end of the episode with Shelly yeah. and Leo? Yeah. I mean, there's also... Shelly shoots Leo. That's what happens. <laughs> Shelly aims a gun at Leo and shoots. Yes. We don't see Bullet Connect. We do also see Ben Horn uh, having a little secret meeting with Josie. Right, but that's we're gonna talk. We're gonna we're gonna not blow everything apart, and then we're gonna focus in. Is there anything we want to say about this? Well, first, Hank beating up Leo, revealing that he is in fact the kind of yeah. criminal top dog over Leo, mm-hmm. and then Leo in an, in a rage enters the house, uh, and. Finally, the gun that before had only been used in really awkward foreplay uh, is at least fired, ostensibly at someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that someone screams, really great scream on his part, and then runs out of the house. Uh, is there anything we want to say about how that scene plays out? How that fits into the relationship dynamic that had been established earlier, where Leo's the abuser and Shelly is like kind of working with Bobby to to turn that back on Leo. I mean, I think naturally everyone is kind of happy that Shelly's standing up for herself. I would be surprised if someone was like, oh God, poor Leo mm-hmm. in this scene. Yeah. Um, um, it feels sort of righteous in that sense. And I think, I think in terms of what we see Shelly 
feeling at that time. Uh, it's not like she then like it's not like the all the gun waving and like awkward makeouts with Bobby where they're talking about these plans is actually like there is like a vulnerability. She's not prepared or like cold and calculating about this moment. She like struggles to get the gun out mm-hmm. and is like struggling to point it. Uh, Leo has his time to be like kind of like mustache twirly like you don't have the guts to do it and then she fires and is like clearly like shocked by the fact that she actually did it right um I think that's very important because despite like the clearly the apparently like unrealistic like Shelly gun makeout thing I hope people don't actually do that in life there are probably people who've done that in real life Ugh. Anyway, as as hard as it is to take those moments seriously, like, no, Shelly's a real person. This yeah. is an action that's not without consequence. She's not, like, a cold, emotionless, like, yeah. like I'm going to get my revenge in this moment uh, mm-hmm. figure. Anyway, now let's talk about, you said Josie just smoking a cigarette yeah. <laughs> in Ben's office yeah. while the Icelandic party is going on. Yeah, she has that cigarette holder. You mm-hmm. know, she's leaning back in the big chair. Are, are we doing another another great look moment? Or <laughs> it is a great look. It's a powerful look. Yeah. Um, I, I I have something that I want to bring up: the secret passages in the Great Northern. Why? <laughs> why do they exist? Like I know. In a, in a real world sense, why they might exist, which is that they're probably for the housekeeping and help yeah. in the Great Northern. Why are they still open? That's one question. Why is there the cartoonish cutaway with the eye hole in the painting and who put that there? Audrey. You th- you, well, that's why I, like, I was thinking this episode, like, is this something that Audrey was just like, I'm going to spy on my dad mm-hmm. and I'm going to cut this out? Or is this something she discovered? That's something yeah. I kind of... Like, it's not important, but I do want to know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know. Did Ben Horn build the Great Northern, or did he buy it? I have to... Where did it come from originally? Oh, I think... I want to say, if I recall from something, and it's like a minor spoiler at best, if it is, I want to say the Horn family built it. I want to say... But was it Ben specifically? I want to say it was, like, Ben's father. Um... And episodes from now, when we get like kind of a pseudo flashback thing, I might be able to confirm this later. But I want to, I just like, it's so useful for Audrey. Audrey's like killing it in terms of, but also like has to go yeah. through some character, uh, uh, some personal uh, yeah. strife in, in being a great uh, teen investigator this episode. <laughs> but it's so useful to just have this hole that peers into her dad's office. Because before we get Ben and Josie, we get Ben and Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> love Catherine's three slaps to the face rule. Um, yeah. As long as we're talking about rules of three. <laughs> I love that Catherine and Ben. I feel like this time I'm more into their kind of uh, tumultuous sort of business dealings that are like, they're not doing the level-headed thing about doing like potentially murderous business mm-hmm. because they've also wrapped it up in their attraction to yeah, one another, absolutely. Um, which is not going to work out, especially since Ben is like plotting a double cross. Yeah. Um, it's like, he's thinking with his wallet and his penis and his brain all at the same time. And but is he thinking with his heart? No. No. Does Ben have a heart? No. No. <laughs> um, do you think that when he, uh, 
talks to Jerry earlier in the episode and he talks about one-eyed jacks and he puts a hand up over his face that kind of looks like that part in the shining where he's looking at through yes the, yeah <laughs> i did actually feel that i was not making like a total joke i was like oh maybe like maybe maybe that's a visual like similarity that's like we're thinking about anyway that was early in the episode do, what, what do you what do you think about how quickly this episode lays on multiple layers to the ghostwood thing which had kind of taken a back seat for for a couple hours of showtime at this yeah. point yeah so the multiple layers you're referring to are kind of the crossing, double crossing that's occurring mm-hmm. already the mill because that's where the Ghostwood Estates are going to be, um, and also the Icelandic buyers. Do you think that this episode like puts it all up there too fast, or? Um, I mean, I was like on board with it, but I've seen this episode multiple times. It, it's just like. It feels like maybe one, to me, like one element might have made this feel less like, and again, it like creates tension uh, to reveal so many things all at once. Mm -hmm. Uh, It certainly makes for a memorable episode, but it feels like it's a lot to keep track of now. Um, Whereas like if they had revealed perhaps that Ben and Josie were in cahoots a little earlier, like then things might be playing out at a more like. It is all mostly in the third act that this stuff is revealed. Yeah, and it doesn't help that the, like, literally the setting for these uh, revelations is around this, like, big commotion party. Uh, Like, suddenly everything's happening all at once. Oh, and Leland's there, and Leland's ruining things. Yeah. Um, When the music comes back on. I, I... how do we feel about the actual dance that happens? Where I weirdly like loved Catherine and Leland dancing. Like Catherine's improv. Yeah. Oh, he's not freaking out. He's doing the this hands is dance. A dance. <laughs> um, I know that like Catherine's like not a kind character. She's not written that way, and the actress I don't think portrays her that way. But there was like a weird dignity that she gave Leland, and I know it was at Ben's request and for the sake of this business deal they both have vested interests yeah but i think like on a personal level like kind of save leland's face a little bit yeah um poor leland it's just like you can you can see this struggle that he's having and then to like he he walks in the episode into the office earlier in the episode to be like I want to get back to work yeah and this is a situation that he's not entirely brought upon himself because it's not like Ben is taking any time in the wake of this tragedy that the town is working yeah. through to you know reconsider he's mm-hmm. immediately flown his brother out to Iceland to fly back with a large party of investors and there is this part of Leland showing through that just like uh wants to be wants to be Leland and doesn't want to be this like wreck um yeah yeah well and it's such a strong contrast from episode one when they're doing their business deal with the Norwegians together and they're mm-hmm. both sort of scheming and enjoying it yeah um whereas like Leland is very much destabilized at this point um, Ben is ruthless Ben is yeah. plotting this double cross he's telling Catherine he loves her when so he's cheating on his wife but also cheating on Catherine kind of yeah uh ben is like but the thing is that unlike say Aaliyah, ben is not just characterized as like he's bad um he's like bad in this like 
crazy uh over the top and like plot motivator way where he's like clearly tied into what the right. the goo the like the more cookie cutter goons are doing yeah um but we just like we see that in his actions so much more than we do in just like a rote like i'm gonna be a bad guy in this scene characterization yeah he's a lot more like um uh like cruel towards other people than i think even leo is like barring obviously like leo's abusive relationship with shelly i think on a large scale we see ben behave in this really like um dispassionate way towards other people just in all of his interactions pretty much across the board whereas leo uses the threat of violence as like a leverage Mm -hmm. but he doesn't tend to um enact that violence assuming that he sort of gets his way in that moment yeah any other thoughts ben Catherine, josie no 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 ben ben's the interesting bad guy yes that's say i'll say that that's that's my my thought and it's not just because his brother is also this entertaining slimy little worm who enjoys lamb and brie sandwiches but ben himself and he's gonna he's gonna cook for hepa gonna cook crap god the gene pool line i hate it okay let's move on let's move on to production notes and usenet hey okay so this episode was directed by um leslie linka glotter great name later hope i'm saying her name right um anyway so she would go on to direct three more episodes in season two um and she later won an emmy for uh directing in a dramatic series in 2010 for her work on Mad Men. She was nominated again in 2013 for her work on Homeland. Um and she is quoting as saying that there was never an intention to put Audrey and Cooper together, which contrasts pretty strongly with what Tina Rathbone said two or three episodes ago at this point. Right. We moved on production as before we even really touched on Audrey is naked in Cooper's bed at the very end of this episode mm. after having just discovered her father's plan to both burn the mill and that he's sleeping with Catherine. That did happen. So sh- so the director of this episode said the plan was never to put them together. Yeah, right? So right. yeah, I'm not saying that this episode I mean, is gesturing towards sure. that, but it's definitely like the, the it's dancing around that issue like very we're da- blatantly we're, we're dancing around the issue but it, like it, what the episode is clearly doing is dangling as a carrot of a possibility yeah 18 years old naked in bed by the end of the episode like i said at the beginning just a couple points throughout the episode moves mm-hmm. so fast Right. Um, um, and but, I, the thing is, I actually don't have a date for when she was quoted as saying this. So this could be a pretty, like, retroactive statement. I'm not 100% right. sure. The idea that you could say from the start of the show, like, this is this is the thing where we get back into whether or not a show has a grand vision or whether or I not it's... I have more comments about that. Oh, gosh. Well, let's not be here for a full two hours, but whether a show has a grand vision or whether it's adaptive to, like, fan response, like... People very into Audrey plus Cooper. Mm-hmm. To say that you wouldn't even consider that, especially when you're like building it up as a as a distinct possibility and like kind of giving yourself those outs in case like you know you want it to happen and you're just like, well, at least she's eighteen, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, at least Cooper is like maybe being like or trying to be gentle and cool about this. Uh, like you know, to say then like, oh, it was never, never ever. Like, come yeah. on, it was never gonna happen. Um, 
that scene also i think it has like weird connotations with me of like oh like the tempting young virgin you know what i mean also it comes immediately after she has these revelations and is like clearly upset and asking like please don't kick me out so it's like this kind of weird mixed message of like i want you but also like it's, it's the, like, I want it's you, like I need you, but, like, the emotional vulnerability is, is, like... It's kind of, like, emotionally manipulative. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a more complicated and maybe, like, on a, you know, if we're talking about characters and, like, what we think about their actions forgivable thing than what she pulls in the department store. Right. Um, but also, then it's just so much messier of a situation because, mm-hmm. sensibly, her reason for being there isn't just that, oh, she's attracted to Cooper, but she's, like very upset at this stage right and for some reason that just leads to what her the action she takes is and then cooper's just like what what um yeah having not gotten any of that also again this is another episode where uh so the, the end result that oh my gosh we're just in my effort to go fast maddie secures that tape you see that at the very end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Again, teen detectives doing a great job. Real detectives. Why is the tape in a shoebox if she just took it out of a bedpost? Because um, you won't leave it in the bedpost if you found it. But then why aren't you just carrying it? Why isn't it in her pocket? She has that great sweater. I'm sure it has pockets. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> that's what your big, your big like upset point this week was. Like, why a cassette tape in a shoebox? That's far too large for a cassette tape. <laughs> Yeah. Um, also, like, the antiquated, like, bring a cassette player uh, <laughs> to their meeting is just, like, I don't think in the revival, I mean, if we're still talking about cassettes as evidence, um, it's going to be kind of hard to explain why. reopening the original case, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess if you have to bring in the old-ass stuff, yeah. Wait, I would be so into a scene like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. Moving on. Okay. Um... The other interesting quote uh, from Leslie Linka Glotter, Glater, um, the esteemed director, is that um, she commented that she felt like longing was kind of a unifying theme across this episode and the series as a whole, um, which I think is mostly manifested in the various affairs that everyone is having. Yeah. And the unrequited love that seems rampant in this town. <laughs> yeah. Just like... Nadine and Ed long to be together, even if Ed doesn't really know it yet. I thought you were... Okay. Hmm? What? I thought you were saying he chose to be with her in this episode. I think it's still a complicated thing for him, but that's what the sunlight is supposed to symbolize. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um, so, Usenet this week. Um, there were a couple of interesting uh, topics that I think you will maybe approve of. Um, if they start to take too long, I'll be... (laughs) Give me a moment here. (laughs) I'll be upset no matter what. Um, Well, I tried to speed through this ending (laughs) here, and then you spent a long time talking about the horns. Hey, sorry. Also, no Sylvia this episode. (laughs) Start of no Sylvia streak. The absence of Sylvia. Um, Um, Anyway, so someone made the comment that this episode is loaded with presidential references. Okay. Um, one, the lining up of the faces of Cooper, Truman Hawk, and Doc Hayward as a reference to Mount Rushmore. I screenshot that. That, for all I know, may end up being what the episode art is this week. I love it. Because it's a great shot. Okay. Let's do it. And then, um, Jerry Horn says, uh, not verbatim, ich bin all Icelandic. Yeah. Or we all are Icelanders. 
Um, so that's... I'm aware of the cultural reference. I think yeah. our listeners are as well. <laughs> well, not everyone is. Um... <laughs> Ich bin ein Berliner. Berliner. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's Kennedy. Yeah, no. I'm Everybody just, knows that. I feel like not everyone knows that. <laughs> My mom will know that. Get but... your president game on point if you don't know that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> three, when in the woods, the foreign guest investigators find two log cabins. Um, ooh, ooh, I have one. I have one. The sheriff's name is Harry S. <laughs> There's a lot of present stuff one. in this show. It's almost as if part of like the little secret sauce that goes into the show, which would be readily apparent from the pilot, is that it plays around with themes of Americana. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, this person is saying that the log cabins are references to Abe Lincoln. Um... The or hidden, just log cabins is a thing. The hidden tape is a reference to Richard Nixon and Watergate. That's such a stretch. Um, that is such a stretch. Actually, number five is uh, Harry S. Truman. So. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, All right. Um, hold on. That was just like a person on Usenet being like, I'm a noticer of, of things. <laughs> um, which I guess, you know, in terms of figuring out what the internet was, I can't blame him for that. Uh, eventually being a noticer of things is why we have wikipedias for like every fictional work ever yes yes um so around this time there was also a usa today article um which was an interview with the costume designer for twin peaks who described audrey horn's style as lolita on acid (laughs) okay i'm not seeing the acid component of this yes but as a as a as an expert in lolita given your thesis does that does that truck does that track with you no absolutely not that's the cultural understanding of lolita as this young sexually precocious young girl whereas i'm saying i'm saying the reference being in reference to that that misreading of the novel yes if it's in reference to the misreading of the novel, sure, but I don't really want to propagate that okay. misreading of the novel. Okay, all right, all right. Um, another choice quote from this could article. could be fighting fire with fire is what I'm thinking. Like, where... I don't know. How so? Where it's just like, you have to, you have to use that term, but then what you would want to do with audrey as a character is maybe to try and defeat some of this i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this anyway no i don't think no okay anyway um another choice quote about james hurley and his style um he has a biker exterior leather jacket and harley boots but underneath he's a soft flannel shirt and sweater that's like literally what his costume is though i know i know (laughs) and it's a boring Um, costume but it's pretty funny because the like tagline or whatever for this article is like the answers to Twin Peaks are in the wardrobe, and then it's all like the same. Uh, is stuff. there any mention of Cooper's dope FBI uniform and stitching, or as I've already talked about, no. um, Truman's dope purple coat? No, no purple coat. But Lolita on acid is what we get, and we then I get to get make Lolita a fool of myself acid. trying to pick up. Yeah, I don't really get the on acid part. It's just like, was that a hip thing to do in the '90s when, like, finally on all acid. the when all the the uh, like flower children of the 60s and 70s were like in positions of like power and being able to be like on acid because look at how old i am you know i probably did it so <laughs> probably um hip with the kids so here is audrey's fashion is radical lolita tubular <laughs> lolita Psychedelic that's what I, that's lolita. that's what it is just trying to be edgy yeah Ugh. anyway 
Um, so here is... Blast processed Lolita. The, That's a nerdy reference. Okay. This is the newest theory on the message boards. Hit me. I'm going to be super Are disappointed. Are you ready? Okay. Let's just go. <laughs> Leo murders Laura. Several days later, Shelly shoots him. Severely wounded, Leo realizes that his being shot at, was at least in part a consequence of his having murdered Laura. He travels several days back into the past to warn Leo Prime not to kill Laura. Otherwise, Leo Prime will be shot by Shelly Prime. Leo Whoa. not dies. What? <laughs> You're missing the important parts. Leo not dies. His shirt a bloody mess. Leo Prime takes Leo Not's shirt to um, Jock Prime as proof that he was visited by Leo Not. Leo Prime explains to Jock Prime why they mustn't kill Laura Prime, at least not yet. Leo Prime arrives home and has Shelly Prime wash his laundry while he tries to think of a plan. Shelly Prime finds the bloodstained shirt and hides it. Laura Prime, who is still alive, decides to masquerade as her cousin Madeline. Several days later, Laura Prime calls Jacoby Prime. Meanwhile, Laura Prime stalks Shelly Prime with a sniper's rifle. Um, since by eliminating her, he becomes free to murder Laura Prime, which was his original plan for reasons unknown. Without fear, he can now do this without being without fear of being shot. You know, I said uh, that I didn't want this to be another two-hour episode, but holy shit... <laughs> Never mind. This time travel theory, I love it. Even though there's absolutely, even though it's absolutely bonkers and it doesn't make any actual sense given the what clues have been uh, kind of. It has an explanation sprinkled for the shirt. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have an explanation <laughs> through the shirt though. It's like, how is there that much blood on a shirt if he's still alive? Time travel. That's it. I want to do that with every TV show now. I want to take the first season of How I Met Your Mother and then explain about how it's all time travel. And there's like Ted Prime and Ted Not and Ted Alpha and uh, uh, Ted Beta. Like, uh, uh, oh, Barney. Barney actually exists the same in all timelines. Let me tell you why. Here's one hint. Like. <laughs> You could do it with anything. This is a revelation to me. You can make time travel theories about any TV show. That's my new blog. Check it out. No, um, okay. You know what? Still a bad theory, but I like that one a lot more than the other bad theories. Is that it for Usenet? Do we have more for Usenet? Mm, no, there are a couple of other interesting things. Okay. So another theory. Um, this actually isn't a theory so much as an assertion. Uh, someone asserted that Blackie, um, the mistress of the brothel, is actually just normal with a brown wig. And then this is someone... another one of those cases where people just need to watch the tapes that they don't have. <laughs> and then someone replied and said, "No, Blackie is obviously Nadine without an eye patch." <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that as being the fireback. No, it's the other character. <laughs> And you couldn't tell because normally she's wearing an eye patch and her hair is color colored different and her face is different and well, her voice is different. Did I also tell you the theory from a yes. few episodes ago about Lucy being the new girl? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. People are Just bad like with faces on the internet. I don't even they need better you, like, TVs. half of the shit on these boards. <laughs> I'm imagining these people who like have Usenet terminals uh, at their disposal are also watching the show on these little like five inch black and white TVs and so they're just like, who's that? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, you have the food in your hand. Is it food time? We're done with Usenet. Um, I was going to make one more comment about our really long discussion from last week before we did the food segment. Let's do it. 
Okay. I'm open I to think it. for me, uh, what we were talking about and whether like a television show is a single unified vision or constantly evolving or whatever. It can be best summed up by the show DuckTales. I agree. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking about it all week. Um, let me tell you about uh, my theories on this and Scrooge McDuck and how it um, actually it relates a lot to Ulysses. Uh, if we want to talk about singular artistic visions, um, DuckTales as encyclopedic fiction. Sorry. I just totally undercut whatever point you're going to make <laughs> to make a dumb joke. Sorry. I was just going to let you keep going until you ran out of stuff. We I could have kept about... going, but I didn't want to. After this is over, we should talk about all of those duck cartoons that were weirdly popular for a minute. Anyway, <laughs> um, the point that I was going to make, though, is that I think for me it comes back to um, death of the author and the idea that like when a work is finished, um, the creator, like their interpretation no longer um holds any authority or weight and the work exists singularly to be interpreted uh-huh. but the thing with a tv show i think is when when is that point when is it complete and like ready to be interpreted because yeah. it's kind of always in production and like always changing yeah it reminds me of a of a quote which i'll roughly reproduce from david lynch uh about his work which is that he was in an interview and in the interview he was asked about how people uh should interpret uh such and such about one of his films i think Mm -hmm. and he shot back with like ultimately what i don't like about interviews is people asking me about this thing that's already done uh as to what it is or like what it means and just says like roughly like that's the thing the thing is the movie yeah go enjoy it yeah um but then the thing is like when when do you say okay here's the product here is the pro- well yeah because in his case here's a show that he was in and out of being in legit control over uh at times say the pilot series finale uh, fire walk with me very much you know going forward and saying you know i love the world of twin peaks i want to work on it now with the revival he's kind of saying the same thing mm-hmm. at what point do you as that same person who when you're talking about say blue velvet or maholland drive say that's the movie just go watch it don't ask me questions about it come to your own conclusions or or draw the correct conclusions through proper analysis of my film at what point are you allowed to say that about the tv show that was produced in a very different manner um i'm asking the question i think more literally than you're interpreting it give it to me in the most literal sense okay so when you have a book that you're interpreting Uh that book has gone has been written it has gone through rewrites it hasn't gone through rewrites. the point is it's packaged for your consumption it's ready to go no one's gonna add anything to it at this point like it is the book as it is this is is and how it will always B, whereas with a TV show, not only is it continually in production, so information is being added, it is being retroactively changed. Um, so the idea being that, like, when you have this single work that's, like, ready for consumption and ready to be, like, read and critiqued and stuff like that, um, it's, like, done. It's complete. It's it's packaged. It's a single thing, and you know that, like, start to finish it was composed, um, and then you the add intention. log lady introductions yeah, or but create a point, whole new series. <laughs> but the point being is that at that point, you can argue that it was um, purposefully composed in this way from start to finish. And that's like a big part of making 
Um, an analytic literary argument is saying that like this detail was added purposefully here to reference this detail here and this is how this connects to this and this is why it relates to the construction of this subplot and this like theme and this is more developed. complicated for television this is complicated by the fact that you have to by the fact that you're not ever getting a complete product until the show has ended but at the same time like things episodes and whole seasons are being put out while the show is very much still in production in the sense that like no one knows what's what's gonna happen so they can't go back and say like oh we should change this thing in right you know episode one season three to uh -huh. better complement the vision that we're working towards for the finale of season five so there's a degree of incidentalness that i think you don't see in movies and books and well, I feel like our discussion last week was kind of dancing around whether or not we think it's whether or not we can kind of apply this singular vision or like same that kind of lends to looking at Twin's Peak, mm -hmm. Twin Peaks, uh, Twin's Peak, <laughs> <laughs> sideshow spinoff. Um, so has that? I'm saying in the interim week with all you've just laid out about this, has your opinion changed? Well, I think it's complicated by the medium, essentially, um, and I don't really know where I stand on that. And it's also going to depend on um, the production of an individual show. Like, and I'm sorry, I keep talking about True Detective, but like <laughs> True Detective season one, like from start to finish, um, as far as I understand it, all the scripts were finished before they went into shooting and production. So they knew from start to finish what they were constructing, and it was constructed such that it was this perfect book-ended plot encapsulated in eight episodes um whereas with a show like like the good wife where you start with some scripts written or um better example breaking bad and better call saul you start shooting with some scripts written uh -huh. so episodes one through three are finalized you're writing four through 12 or whatever and things are evolving as you're doing that shooting but you can't go back and alter those first three episodes once they've been shot um this is this is also you're... this is also getting so much more complicated as time goes on and as television grows as a medium i know that you know to some listeners it might be like oh is television really growing as a medium like well now we're in this stage where a lot of shows want to release at a season at a time all at once for immediate consumption right. via the internet um and that totally changes it because before you'd sometimes have these instances of creators, you know, like I think, I feel like another thing that comes is in addition to all these complicated production questions that, you know, should inform or just kind of like really make a mess of our analysis into what the creative process was and, and what the end product is. You'd have them then saying like, it should be washed this way. Like going like, you know, or, you know, say lamenting the, necessity of commercial breaks and things mm -hmm. like that where it's like now you can watch television that was never intended to be seen with commercial breaks right. and all these like just television is so much more up to these kind of meta or extra textual if we want to kind of use that terminology elements that mm -hmm. 
should, you know, in a thorough analysis at some level, influence how we're going to talk about it and how mm-hmm. we're going to come to it. Um, yeah, we could just talk, we could talk t- for two hours every week and never come to any conclusions or any insights <laughs> about all these things, um, which is why television is cool. Yeah. That's one conclusion we can have. That's a, that's a fair conclusion. You know what else is cool? What? Our food segment. Uh, okay. Oh my gosh, it's gonna pick up so loud on the mic. Do you want me to do it again? I'll no, shake it No, I and do don't it again. want you to do it again because then I'll feel compelled to edit it out. This week it's cherry coke. Maddie orders a cherry coke at the Double R Diner and then I think does not sip any of it down before they get up to leave. They like someone on Usenet had a. like they even they even the camera even lingers on her cherry coke that's just there um i could say all sorts of things about how like drinking like if i okay let's say if i was tasked to write an essay i bet i could write a killer essay about how maddie ordering a, a cherry coke in the double r diner um as supported by my references to other uh kind of say influential texts and and films regarding what constitutes an idea of teenage america her ordering a cherry coke yet not finishing it is actually incredibly revealing as to her character and her motive but i'm not gonna she just does it and then we picked it for the food this week and now i'm gonna drink some and tell you what i think of it and so is ashley Mm. You were just pointing at the sugar content. There's 70 grams of sugar in this bottle. Yeah, 20 ounce bottle, 70 grams of sugar. This is nasty. Um, I'm, I'm leaving this with you. Yeah, that's fine. I'll eventually drink it. I'm pretty sure that's like more sugar than a regular bottle of Coke, I want to say. This is like almost three times your daily recommended dose of added sugar. Okay. Well, uh, welcome to Nutrition Corner. Hi. <laughs> you kind of like... You didn't retch, but you did not look pleased to be drinking it, and you're going to leave it like, here. I don't like fake cherry-flavored things. I don't like things with high fructose corn syrup in them. <laughs> yeah, you said, when I suggested cherry coke, you're like, fine, for the podcast. I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, you could have suggested something else, and then we, I would have been open to guess I mean, what would we else. have had? The lamb? Uh, we could, I mean... Donuts, we could have done donuts Donuts again. again. Um... It's, just, it's not going to get my endorsement either, though. Um, if I was going to drink a 20-ounce bottle of Coke, now two 20-ounce bottles of Coke, I would just go for Coke Classic. That's my... That's my Cherry Coke's never really done it for me. It's not bad, like, but it's not great. Why would you do this? Why would I do what? Why would someone make this? It's like... It, I don't know. Do you need to know why when it's incredibly popular and has been in manufacturing for years and years and years? I don't understand people who cherry for this. this cherry is a Coke tasting drink. In all likelihood, as you know, assuming away like the collapse of civilization in our lifetime, cherry Coke has been around before us and it will and it will long last after us on this earth if we want to get back into consideration of lifespans and things this episode cherry coke will outlive us on that note on that note (laughs) you can find us on twitter the show's twitter is at twin peaks peaks uh you can also find the show on facebook facebook.com slash twin peaks peaks 
We have our podcast website on Simplecast, TwinPeaksPeaks.SimplecastFM. But find us on iTunes, subscribe, leave reviews, be very nice. Um, you going to plug your Twitter? Yeah, uh, my Twitter is at Ashley Brandt. My Twitter is at Matthew Olson. We're very creative with our Twitter names. Now, we're just lucky because we nailed our own names on Twitter, um, which for some people is harder to come by. I'm uh, in a constant race with everyone else with my name to get all of the social media handles. There's a BMX biker named Matt Olson, and I think... With one T? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One T, O-L-S-O-N. And uh, yeah, I lost some things to him. Uh, some email accounts and so forth and social media things. But I got Twitter for the full yeah. name, so There's a happy about guy that. named Ashley Brandt who, I don't know what he does. He has some kind of professional hustle going on. I don't know. He's taken a lot of my stuff. Hmm. Well, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast and then feel kind of butthurt about it. Um, I'm sorry, wherever you are I'm out Sorry, there. Ashley Brandt. Uh, good. We came in at under two hours this week. Will you give us a sign-off? Don't forget to brush your teeth, Harriet. <laughs> <laughs>